1: At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room?
0: And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, I'm very happy to have a variation on our usual approach for this week's podcast. This past weekend, the Texas Tribune held their annual festival in Austin, uh, and I was happy to be invited to moderate a panel the organizers dubbed Hanging in the Balance this past Saturday, uh, September 24th. Uh, The focus of the panel was the competitive elections in four states that are very much in the spotlight in the 2022 elections, Georgia, Nevada, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Today's podcast is a recording of that panel. The folks at the festival did a great job of recruiting four great journalists from those states to talk about the dynamics of the election in each of their respective states. I introduced them all at the panel, but they are Greg Bluestein of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, John Ralston of the Nevada Independent, Andy Chow of Statehouse News Service in Ohio, and Angela Columbus of Spotlight PA in Pennsylvania. Uh, these journalists did a great job not only capturing what's happening in their state, but they did it in a, in a really lively matter that, manner that was uh, very insightful about the themes running through this election season, and if you will, uh, the compare and contrast uh, in those themes among their states. I think you'll enjoy it, and here it is. Okay, so I'm just going to go ahead and start. It's 4.30, and um, you've been welcomed quite a lot by now. <laughs> So, on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm, I'm happy to welcome you to the festival and to our panel Hanging in the Balance. I'm Jim Henson. I teach in the Government Department at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, where I'm the director of the Texas Politics Project, which makes you wonder why is he moderating this panel then. Nonetheless, I will be your moderator today. So, we're scheduled for 60 minutes. Uh, before we make a, all make a massive move to happy hour, we'll talk about politics in four states, that are in the eye of the storm right now uh, in the 2022 elections, Georgia, Nevada, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And we'll take some questions from the audience, so, so be thinking about that. I, I would hope that the employers I hear are in the room, You like, don't ask your employees questions now, okay? i say, you know, there's an HR violation at work, I think, if you do that. Uh, so let me introduce the four terrific journalists who have traveled uh, to be here with us today. I'm going to keep it brief so that we can get to the heart of the matter. You'll find longer bios on all of these folks uh, in the festival material. It's going to be great. We're having a great time in the in the green room. Uh, so, to my immediate left, Greg Bluestein is a political reporter and author who covers the governor's office and Georgia politics for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Uh, I also want to note, uh, contractually, I believe, Greg will sign copies of his book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power at 6 p.m. tonight while we're all drinking at the <laughs> festival bookstore at the Omni, and that is hosted by the American Journalism Project. Uh, um, next to Greg is Andy Chow, a general assignment reporter, a state government reporter for Ohio State House News. He focuses on environmental energy, agriculture, and educated and education-related issues, uh, knows a ton about Ohio, it's great. Next to him, Angela Columbus, is an investigative reporter at Spotlight PA. Before joining Spotlight, she worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer, although there was a transition in there in which I suspect there was some overlap. And last, but not certainly not least, John Ralston founded the Nevada Independent, a nonpartisan nonprofit news and opinion website, founded in 2017 after a career writing and commenting on Nevada politics via several outlets and platforms have it on good authority he's the second best poker player in his family. Um, so without further ado I want to ask all of you to kind of orient us to your states by flagging for the audience the marquee races what's going on in the big races give us a sense of where the dynamics in those races are right now and Greg let's start with you.
3: So I'm in Georgia, we like to think, I'll do respect to my colleagues here, we like to think Georgia's the premier battleground state in the nation, uh, thanks to the 11,000 or so vote margin between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in uh, 2020 and the very close runoffs just a few weeks later that flip control of the US Senate. And right now, Senator Raphael Warnock, who, who narrowly uh, won that Senate seat back in the runoff, has to run for a full six-year term because that was a special election. We also have every statewide office is up for grabs, starting with uh, the governor's race and on down. Um, Stacey Abrams' rematch against Governor Brian Kemp. And what we're seeing right now in Georgia, one of the most interesting things, is a split ticket dynamic. Um, Governor Kemp has a lead in pretty much every poll but Senator Warnock, Democrat is neck and neck with Herschel Walker the former football star in our U.S. Senate race and that is because 3, 4, 5% of Brian Kemp voters are also backing um, Senator Warnock so we don't see split tickets really anywhere but uh, particularly in Georgia and we're seeing that now.
0: Okay so I want to push you a little bit because I know other people are going to want to from their state because they're all very proud <laughs> reporters I, you know Last election, very close. As you said, you're a, you're a swing state. But how permanent is this? I mean, is this, I mean, do we think this is the beginning of something, or do we – what's the argument for it begin, being the beginning of something? What's the argument for us seeing maybe the end of a glitchy period?
3: Yeah, the argument for this beginning, the beginning of something, is a few numbers. Eight, five, <laughs> 1.5, and then 0. 0.1. Um, Republicans won by eight points back in 2014 and 2016 statewide elections. They won by um, five points. Uh, Donald Trump won by five points in 2016. Stacey Abrams lost to Governor Kemp by 1.5 points in 2018, and then you had Democrats flipping the state by about 0.1 percent in 2020. And even if even if the state becomes a uh, you know a seesaw, and even if Republicans win um, both these seats that I just talked about, and all the down ticket seats. Um, Republicans and Democrats alike consider Georgia in nationally and in Georgia a premier 2024 battleground so um- I take I take those cues in some part by the operatives who all say the same thing too from both sides of the party.
0: Andy, what's going on in your state in Ohio? I mean, you you've got in your in your state the Senate race and the governor race look pretty
4: different, right? Very different. And yeah. I would say that maybe Ohio and Georgia have flipped, where Georgia is now one of the more battleground states, and Ohio, which has been considered a swing state for generations, is now becoming more and more red. And I think this next election is going to really tell us if it was a fluke these past couple of years, maybe it was just a Donald Trump effect, or is it really going to hold on? Because we're also seeing the same thing, though. The governor's race in Ohio, there's a wide margin in the polls where the current governor, Mike DeWine, is polling really well against his opponent, Nan Whaley. But the U.S. Senate race is very close. And we're seeing the Democrats sort of take on two strategies here. Uh, the Democrats running for statewide offices like governor, attorney general, secretary of state, they're all running with the sort of the normal game plan that Democrats have used for the past couple of years that has proven not to work, but they're kind of running with that strategy. And then you have Tim Ryan, who's running as the democratic nominee for the U S Senate, trying to appeal to Trump voters and trying to make himself sound like a Trump Democrat. And, according to polling, it's working. And so we're seeing him polling within the margin of error while these other statewide races seem like the Republicans are running away with it.
0: Well, that strategy kind of underlines the change, right? I mean, you wouldn't be doing that if he wouldn't be doing that if he wasn't sensing that movement
4: right and I think what we've seen in Ohio there are certain regions which were like sort of blue collar labor union Democrats who flipped over to the Donald Trump side the only Democrat in Ohio to have a proven record to win is Sherrod Brown and so Tim Ryan is trying to become the the next Sherrod Brown and sort of appealing to those voters and trying to bring back who are now Trump voters who were once Democratic voters and we'll see if it works
0: so before Greg got to the green room, we were talking about why Pennsylvania is really the most important state this election. Right.
1: Right. <laughs> Tell um, us about it. Well, Greg, no offense. I'm just going to read a couple of quotes, and these are not my words. These were written by other uh, largely national media that have come to Pennsylvania, right? The center of the political universe, the center of political gravity, and lastly... Every major American political trend that matters is unfolding right now in Pennsylvania. It's pretty strong. <laughs> yeah, so, um, and, and, and obviously I'm sure this does not make me very popular in in, uh, in Texas either, which is also a center of the universe. But uh, in Pennsylvania, we have two marquee races. One is for the US Senate, and it features Dr. Oz, who everybody knows, he's a celebrity heart surgeon. He's running as a Republican against the state's Democratic Lieutenant Governor, John Fetterman, who is, if anybody has ever seen him or heard him, he's a very unconventional candidate, um, and we can talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, And that race has been billed over and over again as being really important to the balance of power in the the Senate. Um, But the second race, and I think in some respects a more important one, is the one for governor. It really is going to determine uh, what kind of state Pennsylvania is going to be going forward. Um, Is there going to be access to abortion? Is it going to be restricted? Uh, What kind of access to the polls are people going to have? Because it features um, the Democratic Attorney General, Josh Shapiro, who has a very long career in in politics and, and a record that's well known and well established. And he's running against um, a state senator, um, Doug Mastriano, who is an election denier. He was endorsed by Donald Trump. Um, and I'm going to read one other thing because it was, it was written by the AP and it kind of sums up it perfectly, really, the, the importance of it. Um, they wrote that no GOP contender, in talking about Mastriano, did more to subvert the presidential election and no one may be better positioned to subvert the next one than Mastriano if he's elected governor.
0: You know, you said we'd get to it later, but let's let's talk a little bit right now while we've got you on the subject mm-hmm. about the Fetterman Oz race because, right. in some ways, of all these races going on, there's you know not to take anything away from Mastriano, the personalities right. conflict between and the not even personality the persona conflict between. Fetterman in Oz is really interesting. I think it's got a lot of national attention. I'm curious what that looks like from your perspective. I mean, the sense recently to me, looking at the polling and the national coverage, is that Oz was kind of on the ropes. The national Republicans were Mm -hmm. worried about him. Maybe he's closed a little bit, and it does seem a little bit of an open question about what Fetterman's health is like. On one hand, to be fair and not make people angry, you know, he can recover from the stroke, et cetera, but it's obviously been a factor in terms of how people are thinking about the debate, their apparent resistance to debate, even you know even those right. other explanations. Talk a little bit more if you would about what that what that looks like from the ground and what you're hearing about that
1: yeah, so uh, John Fetterman, for those who may not know, suffered a stroke um, a couple weeks before the may primary, and um has since been recovering from it, but what that translated to was that he was unable to hit the campaign trail over the summer. And instead of being out and about in the summer, he ran, his campaign ran this super sophisticated social media campaign that made him, garnered him national headlines, um, you know, it made the word crudité popular again in, in like, you know, regular circles. Um, and it really sort of, uh, it, it really captured the fact that he's got this kind of larger than life persona. Um, but Dr. Oz, in, in kind trying to navigate the, the absence of Fetterman on uh, the campaign trail, just really started to hammer him about his health, about him not being transparent about his health. And anybody who's seen Dr. Oz knows he's super smooth speaker. He's um, very well-practiced in front of cameras.
0: Almost like a salesman.
1: Oh, totally, and um, made a really big issue. And even though there is a long tradition in American politics about questioning people's fitness for office, um, (laughs) this went right up to the line, potentially of, of, of hurting him, but it actually, uh, in, in some respects, also helped in, in that it forced Fetterman back onto the campaign trail so people can now see him and see how he's doing um, physically.
0: And it seemed like it changed the focus of the campaign, not only forcing him back on the trail, but the media, you know, the, the storylines, the coverage began to focus on that a little bit more, it seemed like.
1: Oh, oh, 100%. That's all it was about. There there was very little about issues.
0: So, John, you have, like, a couple of really close top-of-the-ballot races, right, in Nevada.
2: So, first, let me say that um, uh, with the official concession speech tonight that— uh, Ohio is no longer a swing state. <laughs> I, I do, I, I do think that there is very strong competition for second most important state between Georgia and Pennsylvania. So, now let me t- now let me tell you about the mo- now let me tell you about the most important state and why it is. Uh, we do have very two very close races at the top of the ticket, one for Senate and one for Governor. Um, they're both within the margin of error. Uh, there is some evidence uh, that they may be tilting a little bit right now towards the Republicans, but uh, I, I've learned uh, uh, after too many years of doing this, that you don't make pronouncements on September 24th about what, what, what's uh, going, going on. There's a lot more uh, to, to be done. There, there are, um, the Senate race in, in Nevada um, uh, is between uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, who is a, a, a freshman elected in 2016, by only two and a half points, and uh, Adam Laxalt, uh, whose grandfather uh, was a legendary figure in Nevada as a governor and then as a senator, um, but, uh, and, and he would not even be anywhere in, in, without that last name. He actually didn't grow up in Nevada. He moved to Nevada about 10 years ago uh, and ran for attorney general and, and won in an in, in incredibly close race, one of the biggest upsets in history, then ran for governor right away lost in 2018 and then became the leader of the election denier movement on behalf of the Trump campaign in 2020. Uh, he is essentially hiding, uh, Laxalt is, as, as some other Republicans are, are across the country, doing only interviews with Newsmax and Tucker Carlson and only with the, with the most softball of questions. But this is the kind of year... Uh, in a purple state where the Democratic advantage that has existed for many, many cycles is now below 3%. There's been a rise of independent registration. And so uh, uh, that that race is, is is very close, as is the governor's race between the Democratic incumbent, both incumbents at the top of the ticket are Democrats, uh, uh, Steve Sisolak and Joe Lombardo, who is, who is the sheriff of Clark County and is kind of a tabula rasa uh, and that's been to his advantage in many ways when you're running against an incumbent COVID-era governor, et cetera, with all those issues. Just to make the the, the, the we matter, we're most important, uh, to- totally selfish case, all of our statewide offices are up uh, as, as well. Um, a majority of them on the Republican side feature one strain of election denier or another. Um, And those races are competitive as well. And and at at some point, maybe we'll talk about how important Secretary of State's races have become. And and the guy who's running for Secretary of State in Nevada, who has gotten a lot of national attention for all of the wrong reasons. 75% of our congressional races are also in play. Uh, And and, uh, if you look at the list that that inside elections that are, they say there's 20, 25 uh, races that are going to determine control. We have three of them. Um, And and it's mostly because of redistricting and reapportionment that was done that essentially uh, the Democrats had to move some Democrats out of a very safe district to try to shore up two other ones, so now all three districts are in play.
0: You know, for those of us that have not followed Nevada super closely, step back and give us a little bit about the trajectory. So is this, have you guys had several competitive races in a row, you've got two Democratic incumbents. I'm wondering, tell us a little bit about what the what the the movement has been like over the last few elections? Uh,
2: it's it's been rare for races in Nevada to, to 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 not be close at the top of the ticket. A couple of times you have to go back to twenty fourteen when, uh, as only can happen in Nevada, uh, none of the above, which is uh, something people can choose in statewide races, actually won the Democratic primary. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and that is really something, though. The way the law reads is it has no teeth, so the second-place finisher goes, but that was a total unknown, and so he got crushed by, by the Republican incumbent uh, in, in the room. But, but since then, the races have generally been pretty close, and we've been a, a, a purple state uh, for, for quite some time. In fact, it looked like maybe we were going to become a blue state after the 2016 cycle, but uh, it, 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 I think we're firmly purple. By the way, Nevada, uh, for 40 years after LBJ in presidential races, uh, was, was a red state. Uh, And then only uh, when when Obama won and then and then Hillary and and, and Obama won twice, of course, and then uh, Hillary and Biden won, have we become seen as more of a blue state than a red state in presidential races.
0: Does Does that feel a little premature to you? I mean, that's what it sounds like you're saying. To say that
2: we're a blue state?
0: Yeah.
2: uh, It it does, um, uh, although just to have fun with all of my Democratic friends, uh, after the 2016 landslide wins across the board, I declared us to be a blue state, which you would think the Republicans would be upset. The Democrats were upset because no one's going to give us any money now, and we're going to get no outside money if you say that we're blue. And it was a facetious column, but, you know, sometimes people take you seriously, uh, even when you're trying to be facetious. But, yeah, we're, we're a purple state. Now, again... Um, the, the Republicans think there's going to be a big red wave, and I don't just mean Republicans who just say that to say that. I mean some smart Republicans uh, I, I talk to. But uh, there there are a lot of X factors out there, and we'll probably talk about one of them, which is the Dobbs case, which has changed the dynamic of some of these races.
4: I will we'll say that the the Republicans are feeling the same way in Ohio too, where they wouldn't like hearing people say, mm-hmm. "Oh, it's a red state now," because right. they they don't want people to come become complacent and everything. Right. right.
0: Well, I think, yeah, a lot of things have made it so that the parties don't want you stepping on their fundraising space, among other things. So let's go in that direction. when We had talked about this a little bit, and we'll come back to you, Greg. Um, Angela raised abortion. Talk a little bit about the issue environment. Start with abortion, but I'm, I'm interested. I mean, the national kind of overarching narrative, you know, right down to, I think, political playbook this morning is that You know, we're looking at, in most places, some configuration of abortion, the economy, immigration, um, and then where you can rotate different issues in on the fourth side. Like, what's taking pride of place? And, you know, my view of this is typically the parties are trying to push different issues up front. Obviously, Mm -hmm. in virtually everywhere, abortion is to the Democrats' advantage. Talk a little bit about what that looks like, what the mixture of those issues looks like in your in your state.
3: Yeah, like in other states, uh, Democrats hope abortion will be a game changer for their candidates. And they hope that because, in part, they, they believe that Georgia's electorate is usually about 55% women. They believe that polls like ours and other polls aren't picking up on the likelihood that the electorate could be 57% women, 58% women. And if that happens, it changes the entire dynamic in a closed state like Georgia. In Georgia, we had Governor Kemp, when he ran for office in 2018, promised to pass the toughest abortion restrictions in the nation. He didn't quite do that, but he did um, sign into law the next year, and it was a huge national story as well as an enormous local story, uh, abortion restrictions that basically ban abortions as early as six weeks in most cases. And like many other measures that were passed in 2019, it was... Even the Republicans who supported that said, hey, yeah, we'll vote for it, but we never think it's going to go into effect. And then, lo and behold, three years later, it is now in effect. Republicans in Georgia want to talk about anything but abortion, just like probably in your states. Uh, Governor Kemp just had a big headline uh, event with a very kind of far-right Christian a conservative group where he mentioned abortion once, right? And then talked about foster care reforms and economic issues and things like that. He will talk about it if I ask him about it on the campaign trail, if a reporter asks us about it, but he will not go voluntarily speak about abortion related issues. Stacey Abrams, other Democrats, that is kind of the centerpiece of their arguments. They acknowledge the same thing that polls show, which is the economy, inflation, cost of living is jobs. Those are the, that, that's the the prevailing factor Um, for voters but in many polls abortion is two or three and what democrats in georgia and probably elsewhere are trying to do is tie those threads together so Stacey abrams is out there saying governor kemp's anti-abortion laws and pro-gun policies are dissuading businesses from moving to georgia uh, we had a concert that just got canceled called Music Midtown that usually attracts 50,000 or so people. That got canceled because of, of Georgia's permissive gun laws. Uh, we've had other governors in North Carolina, Democrats. North Carolina and California and um, New Jersey all make appeals for Georgia businesses based on our anti-abortion restrictions. So that becomes part of her platform as well.
0: I thought you were going to say they tried to get the
4: music festival. They did
3: that too. They did that too. The North Carolina <laughs> so, governor did.
4: It's like that one line you just said was like the trifecta of those three yep. issues. Bringing it all together. Okay. So what does it look is it is it is it the same ever is it look the same in
0: in your state Andy?
4: It does. Ohio? So I mean if you were to ask any democratic candidate in Ohio they would say the top issue is abortion but again with polling it comes in about third. And so the question is all right, what is driving people to the polls because historically in Ohio The conservative voters, the Republican voters, they have have said in the past that they'll vote for Republican candidates because of abortion. So what happens now that on that Republican side, it's not on the table and on the Democratic side, it's the rights that are on the table. And so that, that dynamic has completely shifted and you see a lot of people in the political world in Ohio really trying to figure out this new landscape because everything's just been shifted ever since the overturning of Roe. And so what you see now is, again, trying to roll in the economy, roll in the issues of guns, same sort of things in Ohio. But then you also have the danger for the Democrats is to maybe sort of ignore other issues like trade deals, immigration, which immigration pulls very heavily in that border state of Ohio. And so... (laughs) So you you're got, very close to Canada. Yeah, we <laughs> And so the the other thing that kind of looms around is that the Republican Party in Ohio is very much controlled by Trump Republicans. And so whether they think that whether the Republicans on the ground in Ohio think that they have a certain winning strategy, it's all thrown out the window if the former president comes in and holds a rally and decides to say whatever he wants to say about things. And again, you see that shift again where somebody like J.D. Vance, who's running as the Republican U.S. Senate nominee, has to sort of fall in line with those talking points that he was trying to avoid. So like what Greg said, I was on the campaign trail with J.D. Vance one or two weeks ago. He never once mentioned abortion, never once mentioned it. But then later that night at a rally in Youngstown, I'm sure maybe you've seen this video of the rally in Youngstown, which we can get into, but... Then that well, is. Just tell them about yeah. the rally in yeah. Youngstown. Go for it. Uh, it's nuts. The rally in Youngstown was something. It was extreme. And uh, at the end, the the at the end, Trump started uh, giving this very bleak description of what the America looks like. And there was music playing underneath. And then everybody started to raise their hands in the air, holding up a finger. It was very. Can I say creepy? I, I think it was very creepy. It was QAnon, right? It was. It was so, so then the reporting later, because I wasn't familiar with what the song was and everything, but later in some, some reporting, they said that the music was very similar to QAnon music that's been used in their materials as well. And again, so you have these Republicans on the ground in Ohio sort of pushing out their own message, seemingly working, and then former President Trump comes in Sort of just shakes it all up, and now you have the Republicans sort of scrambling to sort of spin it in their way, and we'll see if that works. When I was wondering, I think, you
0: know, the, one of those fourth rotating issues was Trump. So we were talking a little bit. It sounds similar, but with a little bit of a twist in Pennsylvania, right, Angela? Yes.
1: Yeah, so both Democratic candidates have made abortion a top issue. It has played out particularly um, loudly in the governor's race because in Pennsylvania currently, there. Uh, The the legislature is controlled by Republicans, and there is currently a Democratic governor who's about to finish um, uh, his term. And that governor has vetoed any uh, abortion bill, uh, any bill restricting abortion that has come to him. So the next governor of Pennsylvania is really viewed as kind of the person who will either block or uh, permit legislation coming from the Republican-controlled legislature uh regarding abortion. So that is why that issue has been so heavily focused on by the Democratic governor. Um, in the US Senate race, it came up today, uh, John Fetterman was in Philadelphia uh, for a rally and he made it front and center uh, uh, of his speech. But that race really hasn't been, like I said before, it has not been super issue oriented up until now, but I, I'm assuming that we're gonna hear quite a bit about it.
0: So, so what are Republicans talking about? Are they trying to, when they're not talking about abortion, well, are they filling the space with the issues these guys were talking about more or less? Anything else more locally kind of flavored?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the, the, so Doug Mastriano, who's running for governor, has not really permitted uh, press at his events, which really makes it very difficult for us to report on what he's, you know, talking about. But thankfully, he does put it on Facebook live so you can see it. Um, you know, he is, he is a candidate who does not run away from his stance on abortion and his stance on abortion is uh, ban it at six weeks, no exception. Um, and he, on the campaign trail, talks a lot about that. He talks a lot about, I mean, a lot of Trump talking points about making Pennsylvania great again. Um, but doesn't really define what that means. And if you go to his website to try and get some insight too into his policies, they're not clear. They're very broad. Um, But there is, you know, one of his big issues is uh, public education and moving money away from funding public education into uh, basically giving parents money to send their kids wherever they want to send them.
0: You know, I'm curious, how does that poll in Pennsylvania? Because here it's a you know, I mean, in, in, this is a way geographically Pennsylvania does strike me as potentially similar to Texas, where even though that's an intensely mm-hmm. popular issue among some Republican elites and opinion leaders, it actually doesn't pull very – doesn't work very well in rural Texas. And so it's, a, it's kind of – it's, it's odd. It's the perpetual issue that's always kind of a loser and not a great campaign issue.
1: Uh, No, it doesn't poll very well in Pennsylvania either. But you know, it polls very well with the wealthiest man in Pennsylvania, who is a, a very big donor to campaigns. And so as a result, that issue has become front and center.
4: And we have this, a similar issue going on in Ohio in general. Public-wise, it doesn't poll very well, but it polls very well for evangelical voters and people who want to send their, vote, right. their kids to private schools or to have school choice. And again, we have some well-connected donors who are in that space, too.
0: It's really easy to poll those six guys with billions of dollars. <laughs> I wish they would just ask us to poll them. Um, you know, I, it's an, yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. John, how about what's the issue universe like in Nevada?
2: So the abortion issue is front and center in Nevada as well in the Senate and gubernatorial races. But it's different in Nevada for this reason. In 1990, uh, and yes, I was covering politics in Nevada in 1990. uh, You were 12. Yes, exactly. Um, The pro-choice groups in Nevada put on the ballot uh, a referendum to cement the pro-choice 24-week statute into law. Um, And if if that were to pass, that would mean that it could not be changed except by a referendum to repeal it. Um, It passed by two to one. Uh, It was overwhelming, surprised a lot of people that Nevada turned out to be that much of a pro-choice state. Um, And that exists today, of course, it has not been changed. And so what, what is happening is, I mean, I get the feeling you could run into Senator Cortez Masto on the street and say, God, the Raiders are a disaster, aren't they? And she would say, did you know Adam Laxalt is pro-life? <laughs> um, uh, th- th- that's all that, th- that she wants to talk about, literally. Uh, that's all now that Governor Steve Sisolak wants to talk about. I've mentioned how close those races are. So what the Republicans finally woke up in, uh, in, in both of these campaigns are doing uh, Cislac's campaign has done a much better, uh, Lombardo's campaign, excuse me, has, uh, has done a much better job than Laxalt's campaign on this. But Lombardo, they both have ads on now about abortion, both Republican candidates. And, and the one that uh, Lombardo's is, is politicians are lying to you. They are saying that person can be elected and do something about abortion. That's not true. They're lying. Don't listen to me. It's settled law. Uh, I, you know, vote for
0: me. I'm powerless.
2: Exactly. Something like, don't vote for me. I can't do what I want to do and that you're mad at me for. Um, uh, Laxalt's campaign has taken a slightly different tack. I don't think their ad is as good, but it's uh, you should be worried about gas prices and inflation and and all these other things. Don't worry about abortion. It's settled law and so nothing can happen. Laxalt's, Laxalt's permutations on this are just incredible. He he got into politics as super pro-life. Even when the state was, was uh, pro-choice and the governor was pro-choice, he started filing amicus briefs in other state cases on the side of the pro-life forces, which the governor went crazy about and publicly spoke out. Fervently pro-life as you can. When he was asked about the referendum I referred to in 1990 during his governor's race, he clearly, because as I mentioned before, had hasn't lived in this state and had no idea what the question was about. And just so just uh, answered, oh, we're looking into overturning that. That, that's on, that's, that. That's on tape and that, that is, that is uh, being used. But now uh, suddenly he uh, is against a federal ban on abortion. Well, this is the most pro-life guy maybe who's ever run for office. Nobody believes it in the know, but he's trying to get the voters to say, don't worry if I'm, I'm I wouldn't, I, I would, if, if Adam Laxalt is elected, I will bet anyone here, if, he ever, if that ever comes up for a vote, that he will vote for it. When he was asked last week uh, by several uh, outlets about Lindsey Graham's uh, a, a bill, uh, they put out a, a statement, They of course they never make him available to answer this, uh, saying it can't pass anyway, it's not relevant.
0: And this was for most people in this audience probably know what we're talking about. This was Lindsey Graham's proposal, which many of his Republican colleagues felt ambushed by, that proposed a federal abortion law allowing abortion up to 15 weeks, but with draconian penalties. And, you know, I mean, so it was a a strange kind of play that, you know, made people, I think, hate Lindsey Graham even more. (laughs) But clearly the
2: polling in Nevada shows for the Democrats that this is a way uh, that they can drive base turnout, that they can get – More female turnout than than previously has been foretold, uh, uh, because every commercial that they have on now essentially is about abortion, and it's all they want to talk
3: about. What really surprised me in Georgia, by the way, is while Governor Kemp, you know, when I asked him about that Lindsey Graham bill, he said, "Oh, I'm not worried about Washington." Asked Herschel Walker about it, leaned into it. Yeah. Said, "Hey, I believe in states' rights, but I would 100% support this federal." And, and in, in fact, he you know he said this multiple times, but he wants to ban all abortion, no exceptions for anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of they're just generally scrambling on the Republican side. I think at this point, trying to figure out where to position themselves. It's interesting to hear the the different variants in, in your states on this. You know, I kind of want to go back. Just start back with you, John, and go back quickly. You know, you mentioned a couple of you have mentioned this notion of how the Democrats, in particular, are. Depending or, or banking on either increased turnout by women that you know will vote pro-choice on or you know s- some variance of against the post obs abortion reality, or and or some increase in registration, I'm curious: Is there any reliable registration data in your state at this point in the cycle that indicates that? Because that I find that looking for that data. Most of the claims that have been made on that are a little shaky. What does it look like in your states?
2: it's pretty, that that data is uh, uh, hard to find in Nevada. It's it's opaque. The Secretary of State's office just does not do that kind of deep dive, unfortunately. The campaigns, uh, uh, the Democrats say that, yes, they're seeing an upsurge, but I'm not sure that that it's true. It does seem that the polling shows poll after poll after poll, and polling in Nevada, for those of you who don't know, has been notoriously bad for a variety of different reasons, that there is an uptick in a abortion as being an issue that people care about and that they are going to go to the polls to vote on, which is why these inoculation ads uh, from the Republicans are on the air right now.
1: Yeah, it's purely anecdotal at this point. Uh, You know, we talk to a lot of groups that are on the ground, that are trying to register people. Uh, When you're talking to groups that are doing it in big urban centers like Philadelphia, like Pittsburgh, The anecdotal evidence is that they are getting a lot of young voters and a lot of female voters. Um, You know that doesn't, though, necessarily mean because I know this is going going to be shocking to some people, but not every woman who registers to vote is going to is is uh, pro-abortion, and so it's really hard. Just even with that anecdotal evidence. Um, to get a true sense as to whether that is going to turn the tide um, and, and for Democratic candidates and whether it's going to resonate with with voters, newly registered voters.
0: Andy, is, tell me you have a completely transparent... Well, I was going to say... An immediately transparent voter registration system in yeah, Ohio, and you can, tell, you can answer this question for us.
4: <laughs> well, I was going to say it's interesting to hear that this is happening in other states. We should all share notes more often because this... Yeah. I'm sorry, Jim. It's not the case. It's the same thing. Well, and so about a month ago, the Democrats for the Democratic uh, gubernatorial candidate, Nan Whaley, they put out a press release and it said, women are pissed. And then they used these new voter registration. But no, I mean, I think that they don't have those demographics. They can just show you that there's an uptick in new registrations. Maybe they have some data to show who was already registered and so – there's something there. There's a there's a hope that Ohio, if the Democrats are going to start winning, they need to turn out more suburban voters, more like of those red suburban areas outside of the urban cores, which are blue, and they need to flip those suburbs blue. And they believe that this uptick in voter registrations are coming from those areas. And so, but it's a stretch. It's kind of a Hail
0: Mary. Yeah, suburban women is one of the most enduring election tropes of this yeah, century. Yes.
3: But in Georgia, it's a true trope, right? Our suburbs—a true trope. trope. Our suburbs (laughs) flipped in twenty sixteen for the first time since Jimmy Carter's era, um, based on a a surge of voting, but particularly among um, suburban women. Um, We are the anomaly. We actually have that data. Uh, But the the problem with that data is pretty much everyone who gets a license in Georgia registers to vote at the same time. So we have one point six million newly registered voters since 2018, but just as you said, uh, um, just because you're a woman doesn't mean you're necessarily against abortion. Just because you're a registered voter doesn't mean you vote, right? So it's really hard to tell if this is going to change the electorate at all, because so many of those people will not vote. But generally speaking, um, the 1.6 million Uh, this is sort of the Democratic fantasy in Georgia right now. This is what's keeping their hopes alive because those 1.6 million new voters tend to skew younger. Um, They tend to be living in the metro Atlanta suburbs that have turned blue. Some of them are transplants from other states that are blue. Um, So they tend to be Democratic-leaning, but again, you got to get them to vote.
0: And we should give a little bit of love to the... In case there's a campaign consultant or two in the room, I mean, you know, people model this stuff. They extrapolate. They sell these models to people, but, you know... They're models, they're, they're, models not, yeah. they're not the actual Jim, data. Jim,
2: let me let me just give you one more piece of uh, anecdotal, as you were, d- data on this in, in Nevada. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, uh, Sarah Longwell, who's the publisher of The Bulwark, uh, who's been doing focus groups across the country, did a couple of focus groups uh, in, in Nevada and asked primarily about these uh, two races. And I'll just give you two data points uh, from them. Every single person in each of these focus groups, there were eight people in, in one and nine in the other, when asked why they were not voting, uh, uh, how they were going to vote. These are, by the way, Democrats who were open to voting for Republicans. That's how they were chosen. Every single person was against Laxall. Every single person, and except for one or two, it was because of abortion. That's what that's, that was. A uh, little different, and, and that's why there's some crossover, just like in your state uh, at the top of the ticket. I think there there, there there will be some Democratic-Republican splitting, and what that percentage is could turn turn the race not everyone was against Lombardo, but those who were not going to vote for Lombardo cited abortion. Mm-hmm. So, there, and again, focus groups aren't determinative, you know, they're not polls, but you can pick up trends from, from, from focus groups, and I found that to be significant.
0: Focus groups are the only thing that have people going, hey, it's not a poll.
2: Right. right.
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: you know, I've, I've done both, you know, yeah, yeah. So, which makes me either probably a bad person. Um, you know, I want to... You were going to jump in a minute ago. Oh, I
4: was going to say, you made a good point about just because you're a registered voter doesn't mean that you're going to go vote. And there is, again, the anecdotal information and everything. There was a correlation. There was a big uptick in voter registration right after the Dobbs case. So I think that's another thing that the Democrats were pointing to as like, this is why.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's such a gray area. I mean, it's not implausible what's going on here, but we also know that we've really misjudged trying to figure those things out a lot in the last few years. And, you know, I think we should all be a little gun-shy about that. I mean, skepticism is really in order, even though, I mean, you know, it stands to reason. But the closer you look at the polling numbers, the less you see that abortion attitudes have moved. And the salience readings that we get, at least here in some of the national stuff, shows that there's still a fundamental problem that Democrats have that they can never – that they still haven't gotten away from, even as the parties have gotten more polarized – there's still a lot more heterogeneity among Democrats in terms of what issues they see or they think are most important, and and abortion is now number one in most of the polling I see among Democrats. But just to use Texas as an example, and Texas is a slightly extreme example, you know, when we ask when we ask what is the either either what is the most important problem facing the state or what is on your mind going into the election, number one issue among Republicans, not surprisingly. My old comrade Ross Ramsey, and he's here. We've been talking about this for a decade: immigration and border security. You know, we were talking about gambling earlier. One thing I will gamble on is that immigration and border security is going to be at about 50% among Republicans. This time, Democrats, abortion moved up to the top, but only among 20, but you know, 22, 25% of Democrats. They've just got all these other things going on among their constituents, and it makes it. It makes me skeptical about. What the mobilization potential and what the upside is.
2: Well, But, you know, the thing that's changed, too, is that, well, first of all, one thing that hasn't changed is by this point in an election, whether you consider it late or early, there is a lot that's baked in and people are not going to change their minds. And, and whether there 10 percent undecided, 15 percent, whatever number and whatever state it is, a lot of that is baked in. What has changed since I first started covering politics in 1986 is the velocity with which information moves and the velocity with which the landscape can be changed. Uh, and so, I still think there are things that could intercede. I I, I don't know what they are. Whether it's something uh, it, it's something that occurs overseas, it's something that occurs domestically that could affect these un, these undecided voters. I don't. I think it's going to be hard to get a lot more new voters uh, to, to to come into play now that are going to vote based on abortion. If they if they if they are upset about the Dobbs decision, they're probably already registered and they probably decided which way they are going to vote. But they're. The, the, the way that social media works, uh, the, the upsurge now in digital advertising, which was not a thing, you know, way back in the day, and how campaigns are skillful at using that when they use TikToks now and they use Instagram and all kinds of ways of deliver because there has been an upsurge in youth registration. Mm-hmm. Um, but are they going to vote, you know, the Democrats Go think ahead. that's great, but is, is it some of these Republican campaigns are really sophisticated in how they're trying to appeal to the youth vote? So I just think, I think while there's a lot that's baked in now, I still think that there that something could happen to affect yeah. these I undecided.
0: Mean, I, I, you know, basically, you know, to, in the artless language of, of the social sciences, you know, all that all those forces of stability are there, but what we've seen in the last few political cycles, much higher incidents of what we call exogenous shocks, just, you know, for regular people, shit happens. Big <laughs> shit, <shock, laughs> right? Well, and, right, right. Jim,
2: Jim Comey or Access Hollywood, they exactly, happen happened. Right. supposedly yeah. they change everything. Super right? or, or in a more
0: dour <laughs> sense, you know, in Texas, mass shootings or right, big sure. foreign crises. Right, right. Greg, go ahead. and the, But I'm also going to tell you what I want to do so that maybe you can do this. So we're going to run out of time. I want to have people start to line up. Make your comment and then a lightning round. What? What do you want to say about your state that we haven't gotten to? I was going to okay? say
3: what, when you mentioned TikTok candidates, John Ossoff was the first, maybe first TikTok candidate, and he was all over TikTok and all these memes I didn't remotely understand, and my, and my kids did. My 11-year-old was uh, good, but I asked him, I was like, "What? what what's with how do you? How did you follow this?" He goes, "Bluestein, I didn't. I just gave it to a staffer. He did everything, <laughs> and he raised all sorts of money off of it. So, um, but no, the one point I would make too is the other fundamental problem Democrats have." is Joe Biden, and it it sounds weird in a state like Mm. Georgia and Pennsylvania, both those states put Biden over the top. Just two years ago, his approval ratings in our latest poll is 37%. Every other poll has him at high 30s, low 40s. We're seeing Democrats treat that very differently. Stacey Abrams can't run away from him. She tried to be his running mate. She takes credit for orchestrating the blueprint that led to his victory in Georgia, so she's he can campaign down here, I support his policies. Senator Warnock, he talks more about working with Ted Cruz than he does with, I'm not kidding. He talks more about working with Ted Cruz on the highway bill that would stretch from Texas all the way to Georgia than he does about uh, working with Joe Biden.
0: That's a real argument that your state is important and competitive and maybe a little weird.
4: Yeah. <laughs> so I, I know all eyes are on the U.S. House. Are the Republicans going to flip it? When you're watching these races during the midterms, just remember that Ohio's congressional districts are gerrymandered. They are gerrymandered. The Ohio Supreme Court ruled that they have violated the state constitution, yet because of all this infighting, the Republicans want a federal case. And so these maps that are going to be used, it gives Republicans a bigger advantage than they're supposed to have. Based on the state constitution and that could be really big when it comes to tipping the scales for Republicans where you sh- you could have and should have based on the state constitution you would have seen the Democrats have five seats basically gain a seat in Ohio but you could see them lose two seats instead that's a great pro tip
0: so when if you're watching you know most of these people will be doing this so when you're watching MSNBC or CNN and they're up there and they go to Ohio congressional races you know you can go to the bathroom and grab something to drink
4: or yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, as important as the governor's races and as the U.S. Senate races in Pennsylvania, um, equally as important and sort of a sleeper type of issue is um, all of these legislative races that we have going on. Um, The first such races after uh, the redistricting that occurred, um, which was really painful and full of lawsuits in Pennsylvania, um, but for the first time has created... um, at least potentially more equal districts, um, and what the impact is going to be on the makeup of the state legislature going forward, which can be as equally as important as, as uh, who is in the governor's office.
2: So I alluded to this earlier, um, Jim. Across the country, Secretary of State's races, uh, no no one pays attention to them. They're not that important. They're critically important. We know this from Georgia, uh, uh, for for instance. Uh, In in, uh, the last election in 2020, the Secretary of State was a Republican the so only statewide office holder who was a Republican, and she withstood immense pressure from Adam Laxalt and others in the Republican Party to say that Joe Biden's 33,000-vote victory was not valid for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons. Uh, and she made some fairly strong statements saying there was not widespread fraud. Uh, there's no evidence of it. Secretary of State's office, like all the statewide offices are up this time. She's term limited, so she's not – Running, the person who was running for Secretary of State is a person who was a QAnon guy, who was a Mike Lindell, you know, acolyte, who has said, for instance, that no one has really been elected in since 2006. Um, in, in, in Nevada that it's all been fixed there's an algorithm or so, some such nonsense and, and you know I've been pretty good at predicting elections I probably shouldn't say that I'm the one controlling them but, but have, 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 having said that
0: John um, Q. Ralston
2: he's in every he, he, he is ahead in every poll um, by, a few, by a few points um, uh, about, about a third uh, are undecided because no one pays attention those focus groups I'll conclude with this so you know how scary it is they were, both focus groups were asked about the Secretary of State's race. Not one person knew what the Secretary of State did. Not one person knew who the candidates for Secretary of State are. This, this is frightening stuff. Uh, and, and it could affect 2024 in a very adverse way in a lot of different states uh, if, if an election denier or conspiracy theorist is elected.
0: I want to follow up on that. Is there yeah. any effort? Are you guys seeing any national money flowing into that race to try to affect that?
2: Uh, not much. Not enough. Uh, and, and the person who was running against uh, this Republican is a very well-liked lawyer, uh, got the support of Democratic establishment, has raised a ton of money both in state and out of state because uh, uh, of this. And I don't know what the hell he's doing. Hmm. Uh, and, and so uh, I don't know what the strategy is, but uh, they better get out there pretty soon.
1: Can I just add one thing to that? Yeah, 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 please. I I was going to follow up on that
0: Secretary of State thing, so go ahead.
1: Okay, so in Pennsylvania, the the Secretary of State is not elected. The governor appoints that person. Uh, And that issue, too, has become a really big one in the governor's race because Doug Mastriano, who's running as a Republican, Uh, has said that if he gets elected governor, he's going to get somebody in there who's going to be like-minded. And aside from that, he's going to make every single registered voter re-register to vote in violation of all kinds of state and federal laws. So, I mean, th- those races are so important, and I-, I am amazed that, you know, post-2020, that those elections aren't front and center, right. you know, uh, under the spotlight. Right.
4: It's, it's a hard thing to make happen with the public quickly, I think. Secretary of State, so we have a Republican incumbent who's running again, and uh Trump won Ohio. So there's not as much heat on Ohio. Um, But we also have somebody who's running as an independent who is a podcaster, a big QAnon person. (laughs) She once was at a Trump rally, held up a laptop and said it was Hunter Biden's laptop. So um, she's running as an independent. So we have this Republican incumbent who's more of a moderate who's been trying to fight off this uh, run from the right. And she's been just led onto the ballot as an independent.
3: And we're the home of maybe the most famous Secretary of State in the nation, Brad Raffensperger, who was a backbench Republican, kind of nobody, lawmaker, ran in a very competitive Republican primary back in 2018. Um, Everyone thought another conservative activist would win, who was a state senator, um, but Brad waited until the very end, poured money, he's very wealthy, uh, poured his own money into the race, wins the primary, kind of was very, I mean, didn't run a, a very aggressive campaign at all, and was kind of an afterthought um, until, in a sense, until 2020.
0: All that unpleasantness. All that
3: unpleasantness when he famously stood up to Donald Trump's demand to find enough votes to overturn the election three days before the January 5th runoff. And, you know, within, within a week of the, of the November election back in 2020, the entire Republican establishment, except for the governor, but most of the rest of them, including our two incumbent senators at the time, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, all called for Brad Raffensperger to step down. The entire Trump apparatus was going against him, pressuring him. Um, our House Speaker and Lieutenant Governor were getting phone calls from Trump and his allies, urging them to call a special session. The Governor, of course, was getting the same pressure. Um, and if you had, if I had a bet a year ago that Brad Raffensperger about his political fate, I would have thought he wouldn't even qualify to run for office. I thought he was just a sitting duck. I didn't think he had any chance. Not only did he qualify. He beat Jody Heiss, a congressman who was along the same lines as your your, um, uh, nominees, um, who said he would have uh, confirmed Joe Biden's victory in 2020 and bought and propagated all the Trump lies about election fraud. Um, He handily defeated him. And every other GOP incumbent who has faced a Trump-backed challenger in Georgia all also handily defeated their uh, Trump-backed challengers. But the weird caveat to that is they're not anti-Trump. These are not, just like in so many other states, even the Republicans who stood up to Trump still won't say a bad word about yeah. it.
0: Trump is a very difficult friend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go to the question.
3: Good
4: afternoon.
2: Thank you for coming. Uh, I've worked uh, campaigns since 1984, and I cannot recall an election cycle this close, this far along, when there were so many Senate races within the margin of error in all of that time. And I I follow polling very closely, and they all show consistently uh, somewhere around 30 to 35% Republican, 30 to 35% Independent, 40%-ish Democrat. How is it, two questions, how is it that we have come to being so evenly split at almost 50%? Where is that split coming? Is it from the independents who aren't really independent? And also, what what sort of macro trends do you see
3: coming out of this that could be played out in twenty twenty four? In Georgia, a generic Republican, at least polls show, a generic Republican would probably beat Senator Warnock, um, despite you know all his talents. And but Herschel Walker is not a generic Republican, and um, and also Senator Warnock is not a generic Democrat. He's such a uh, he is, just as I said earlier, he has kind of had that maverick sort of um, unique uh, strategy to attract independent voters. He's running a very smart campaign, um, and Herschel Walker, with his blunders, his lies, his past history of violent and erratic behavior, all these issues that are now front and center in Georgia, we've been covering them for a year and a half, but now campaigns are spending multi-million dollar budgets, putting that on TV, has changed the dynamic, so um, that I guess... I guess that's my answer to why things are so close in Georgia, because if if it was a generic Democrat versus generic Republican, it might not be this close at all.
4: Since 2016, I've always wondered if if it's Trump who gets people to vote for Trump or if it can be anybody who emulates Trump. So is it only Donald Trump that can get a certain amount of voters to vote for him in Ohio or can it be somebody who's pretending and, and replicating him? And what we've seen in Ohio is that you can't just be like a carbon copy of Trump. You have to be your own person. And so if Trump were to run in Ohio, it'd be easy. Other Republicans who try to pretend to be like him, it's not so easy. And we're seeing that with J.D. Vance right now because he tried to be just a carbon copy. And I think that's where you're seeing this identity crisis in Ohio, where Trump was able to flip very specific regions. Again, these blue-collar labor union Democrats in the Mahoning Valley where Youngstown is, in Dayton— And you see these Republicans trying to regain that strategy somehow, and it has worked in the past, it might not. And I think for some reason, it's only in these Senate races, because again, with our statewide races, the governor and and down, the Republicans are winning easily. So I don't know if when voters go to the polls, they're thinking of Ohio as one thing and Congress as another. That'd be nice if they were thinking that deeply about it, but... I think that maybe is where it's concerned, too, is that maybe they're really specifically thinking about Trump when they're voting in the U.S. Senate race, and maybe they're thinking about other things when they're looking at these other races.
1: Yeah, really, it's a combination of what they said here, because in Pennsylvania, Democrats, uh, in terms of registration numbers, um, have an edge over Republicans, right? So um, what happened in 2016 was that the entire, you know, it used to be the thought was that in order to win Pennsylvania, a statewide election in Pennsylvania, you had to win big in the Philadelphia suburbs, which tended to trend um, moderate Republican. Well, that that whole scenario flipped in 2016 and has remained that way uh, since then, because And it's complicated because in Pennsylvania, in primaries, independents are not allowed to vote. So you get the most extreme candidates, uh, the most, uh, you know, on both sides, if you'd like. And they do well in the, in the primaries. And then when it comes down to the general election, these candidates no longer fit the mold of uh, winning you know, certain areas of the state. And the, the best example of that is the current um, the, the person running for governor in, in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano. Uh, we've talked to a lot of Republicans in the Philadelphia suburbs who just say, I can't vote for him. He's not my brand of Republican. Um, and so maybe I'll sit it out and maybe I'll hold my nose and vote for the Democrat. And it's the same thing that you were saying in 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 uh you know up in the northeastern part of the state, which used to be, you know, it's white work, primarily white working class, used to vote Democrat, but that it region went really hard for Trump. So it's just it's it's a combination of you know the type of candidates who are not, you know, the candidates that The pre-2016 candidates, as I like to call them, um, and and just the, the, in Pennsylvania, the inability to really um, get independents more into the mix in choosing those candidates for the general election.
2: You're really determined to have Mastriano be the craziest candidate we talk about, no, no matter what everyone else <laughs> I
1: don't think he is, though. <laughs> is that
2: right? Oh, my God. That's even scarier if he, if he doesn't. Oh, never, You're not.
1: Secretary of State. I oh, I'm right right. in a
2: major race. Oh, no, yeah, no. No perfect. one's crazier than Jim Marchant in Nevada. <laughs> um, So... Generally, as I said earlier, the major races—governor, senate—when they're up in Nevada, those they're generally won by moderates. Uh, Nevada has been a purple state for some time. Democrats have had a slight advantage, but extreme candidates on either side generally have not won if they have been the nominee of the party. The independent vote has varied um, from from election to election, generally based on which party is doing well or which issues are prominent. It's a real wild card this time, more than it's ever been, and I'll tell you why. For the first time since I've covered politics in Nevada, independent or non-major party voters are their plurality. They have more uh, registered voters now than Democrats or Republicans. But, and, and Greg alluded to this earlier, the reason that that's occurred, the main reason is they passed a motor voter law a couple sessions ago. So, If you don't register there, they default you to nonpartisan. So there's been this explosion of nonpartisan registration. But how many of them are going to vote? How many of them even realize they've been registered to vote? And the party and the campaigns that are smart enough, because Mark Melman, the Democratic pollster, once said to me, there's no such thing as an independent, John. There's something else. And they're hiding behind being an independent. Which parties, which campaigns are skillful enough to find out who these new independent voters are and which ones they want to turn out are are, are the ones who will win elections? And it's very difficult, especially for a guy who likes to predict election results, to figure this stuff out. Yeah,
0: Mm -hmm. that independent factor is is really important. Like, I, you know what? I have a lot of thoughts on this. We're out of time. I'm going to land this baby. John Ralston, Angela Columbus. Andy Chow, Greg Bluestein. You know what? This was the most important panel of the conference. Give them a hand. I agree. Thank you, guys. It was great. All right. That was still fun the second time around. I hope you enjoyed it. As you follow the 22 national election, I urge you to follow Angela, Andy, Greg, and John on Twitter and to read their work on the web. They're obviously great reporters that have a real deep understanding of what's going on in these crucial states. If you're listening via one of the streaming services that carry this podcast, um, you'll find social media links for these guests linked to their bios and their work and even a photo a photo of what the event looked like in a blog post at the Texas Politics Project website. And that's at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Just follow the link through the polling section to the blog. you got to click a couple times, but it's not that hard to find. Uh, I want to thank them again for such a memorable and and very fun panel. Uh, and thanks to our friends at the Texas Tribune for providing the audio file from the panel and more largely for organizing another great Texas Tribune festival in in Austin. They' generated a lot of news that you've probably heard read about elsewhere uh, over the weekend. Among those friends who help us, I want to give a special shout out to Natalie Choate, who is the chief communications officer at the Texas Tribune, a UT Austin graduate, and in particular, an alumnus of the government department and the government department internship graduate, uh, uh, internship program. And thanks, as always, to the excellent professional and student staff in the audio studio and the liberal arts dev studio at UT Austin, who worked on short notice to put the podcast together. We had to do some sewing together to to make this happen. You all are just great. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening. And we'll be back soon with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.